Section 22 of Baled Hay by Bill Nye. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Another Suggestion We were surprised and grieved to see, on Monday evening, a man in the dress circle at the performance of Hazel Kirk at Blackburn's Grand Opera House, who had communed with the maddening bull till he was considerably elated. When Pittacus made a good hit or Hazel struck a moist lead, and everybody wept softly on the carpet, this man furnished a war-whoop that not only annoyed the audience, but seemed also to break up the actors a little. Later he got more quiet, and at last went to sleep and slid out of his chair on the floor. It is such little episodes as these that make strangers dissatisfied with the glorious West. When you go to see something touchful on the stage, you do not care to have your finer feelings ruffled by the yells of a man who has got a corner on delirium tremens. It is also humiliating to our citizens to be pulled up off the floor by the coat collar and steered out the door by a policeman. We hope that, as progress is more plainly visible in Wyoming, and as we get more and more refined, such things will be of less and less frequent occurrence, till a man can go to see a theatrical performance with just as much comfort as he would in New York and other eastern towns. Another point, while we are discussing the performance of Hazel Kirk, there were some present on Monday night, sitting back in the third balcony, who need a theatrical guide to aid them in discovering which are the places to weep and which to gurgle. It was a little embarrassing to Miss Esler to make a grand dramatic hit that was supposed to yank loose a freshet of woe, to be greeted with a snort of demoniac laughter from the rear of the grand opera house. It seemed to unnerve her and surprise her, but she kept her balance and her head. When death and ruin and shame and dishonor were pictured in their tragic horror, the wild, unfettered humorist of a crude civilization fairly yelled with delight. He thought that the tomb and such things were intended to be synonymous with the minstrel show and the circus. He thought that old Dunstan Kirk was there with his sightless eyes to give Laramie the grandest, rip-roaringest tempest of mirth that she had ever experienced. That is why we say we will never have a successful performance in the theatrical line, till some of this class are provided with laugh-and-cry guide-books. Piscatorial and Editorial A correspondent of the New York Post says that codfish frequents the table-lands of the sea. The codfish, no doubt, does this to secure as nearly as possible a dry, bracing atmosphere. This pure air of the submarine table lands gives to the codfish that breadth of chest and depth of lungs which we have always noticed. The glad free smile of the codfish is largely attributed to the exhilaration of this oceanic altitudinum. The correspondent further says that the cod subsists largely on the sea cherry. Those who have not had the pleasure of seeing the codfish climb the sea cherry tree in search of food, or clubbing the fruit from the heavily laden branches with chunks of coral, have missed a very fine sight. The codfish, when at home rambling through the submarine forests, does not wear his vest unbuttoned, 
as he does while loafing around the grocery stores of the United States. Another Feathered Songster A Fort Steele taxidermist has presented this office with a stuffed bird of prey about nine feet high, which we have put up in the boomerang office, and hereby return thanks for. It is a kind of a cross between a dodo and a meander up the creek. Its neck is long, like the right-of-way to a railway, and its legs need some sawdust to make them look healthy. Those who subscribe for the paper can look at this great work of art free. This bird is noted for its brief and horizontal alimentary canal. It has no devious digestive arrangements, but contents itself with an economical and unostentatious trunk line of digestion, so simple that any child can understand it. He, or she as the case may be, in his, or her, stocking feet can easily look over into the next fall, and when standing in our office, peers down at us from over the stovepipe in a reproachful way that fills us with remorse. We have labeled it the Democrat Wading Up Salt Creek, and filed it away near the skull of an Indian that we killed years ago when we got mad and wiped out a whole tribe. The geological name of this bird we do not at this moment recall, but it is one of those sorrowful-looking fowls that stick their legs out behind when they fly and are not good for food. Parties wishing to see the bird and subscribe for the home journal can obtain an audience by kicking three times on the last hall door on the left and throwing two dollars through the transom. ABOUT THE OSTRICH There is some prospect of ostrich farming developing into quite an industry in the southwest, and it will some time be a cold day when the simple-minded rustic of that region will not have ostrich on toast if he wants it. Ostrich farming, however, will always have its drawbacks. The hen ostrich is not a good layer as a rule, only laying two eggs per annum, which, being about the size of a porcelain washbowl, make her so proud that she takes the balance of the year for the purpose of convalescing. The ostrich is chiefly valuable for the plumage which he wears, and which, when introduced into the world of commerce, makes the husband almost wish that he were dead. Probably the ostrich will not come into general use as an article of food, few people caring for it, as the meat is coarse and the gizzard full of old hardware, and relics of wrecked trains and old irons left where there has been a fire. Carving the ostrich is not so difficult as carving the quail, because the joints are larger and one can find them with less trouble. Still, the bird takes up a great deal of room at the table, and the best circles are not using them. The ostrich does not set. She don't have time. She does not squat down over something and insist on hatching it out if it takes all summer. But she just lays a couple of porcelain cupsidors in the hot sand when she feels like it, and then goes away to the seaside to quiet her shattered nerves. Too Much God and No Flower Old Chief Pocatello, now at the Fort Hall Agency, in answer to an inquiry relative to the true Christian character of a former Indian agent at that place, 
gave in very terse language the most accurate description of a hypocrite that was ever given to the public. Ugh! Too much God and no flower. We are getting cynical. It begins to look now as though Major F. G. Wilson, who stopped here a short time last week and week before, might be a gentleman in disguise. He has done several things since he left here that look to a man up a tree like something irregular and peculiar. The Major has not only prevaricated, but he has done so in such a way as to beat his friends and to make them yearn for his person in order that they may kick him over into the inky night of space. He has represented himself as confidential adviser and literary tourist of several prominent New York, Chicago, Omaha, and tie-siding dailies. And, as such good documents to show in proof of his identity in that capacity, that he has received many courtesies which, as an ordinary American deadbeat, he might have experienced great difficulty in securing. We simply state this in order to put our esteemed contemporaries on their guard, so that they will not let him spit in their overshoes and enjoy himself as he did here. He wears a white hat on his head and a crooked tooth in the piazza of his mouth. This pearly fang he uses to masticate and reduce little delicate irregular fragments of plugged tobacco, which he borrows of people who have time to listen to the silvery tinkle of his bazoo. When last seen, he was headed west and will probably strike Eureka, Nevada in a week or two. His mission seems to be mainly to make people feel a goneness in their exchequer and to distribute tobacco dados over the office stoves of our great land. He is a man who writes long letters to the New York Herald that are never printed. His freshly blown nose is red, but his newspaper articles are not. He claims to represent the Mutual Reserve Fund Life Association lately, too. The company represents the insurance, and he attends to the Mutual Reserve Fund. He has mutually reserved all the funds he could get hold of since he struck the West, besides mutually reserving enough strong drink to eat a hole through the Ames Monument. Such men as Major Wilson make us suspicious of humanity, and very likely the next man who comes along here and represents that he is a great man and wants five dollars on his well-rounded figure and fair fame will have to be identified. We have helped forty or fifty such men to make a bridal tour of Wyoming, and now we are going to saw off and quit. When a great journalist comes into this office again with an internal revenue tax on his breath and nineteen dollars back on his baggage, we will probably pick up a fifty-pound chunk of North Park quartz and spread his intellectual faculties around this building till it looks like the Custer Massacre. End of section 22